Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, and I recently returned from a fabulous client summit in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. No, I'm not just bragging. I actually have a point here. In Scottsdale, we hosted two live recordings of The Fiona Show, and you're going to hear one of them today. In case you were wondering, you can still earn CPE credits by listening to this podcast. We'll come in from New York and reveal two code words. Email both to The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. But before we head off to Scottsdale, let's look at transfer pricing in the news. In Germany, the introduction of a draft tax law from the Ministry of Finance stands to transform transfer pricing in the country as we know it. And just what are these seismic changes? Well, you know how German tax authorities tend to prefer a loose hierarchy of transfer pricing methods with the comparable uncontrolled profits method, usually at the top. (laughs) Well, if this draft becomes law, you can kiss the whole hierarchy goodbye. In fact, the draft wouldn't just toss away the hierarchy, but clarifies a specific method to be adopted under each specific circumstance. And if you think that sounds tedious, just wait. The draft also provides for the implementation of the EU's Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, or ATAD, which would sound like some sort of relief if there wasn't already enough here to cut into tax managers' sleep schedules. Speaking of overhauling tax codes, here is a heads up for MEs with operations in South Korea. Specifically, the Republic of Korea is upping penalties to 100 million won, or a little over $86,000 US, for non or incorrect submissions of transfer pricing reports. And the process for getting a refund is also changing. In fact, tax authorities are claiming to simplify the process, bringing it under the already circuitous system of Korean tax refund remedies. Under the current said convoluted bureaucratic mess. Non-resident taxpayers must request a refund under Article 45-2 of the National Tax Basic Act, or NTBA, if they've overpaid or erroneously paid in taxes to Korea. That's all unless you're claiming a tax exception or reduction, in which case you're required to file a claim in accordance with the Personal Income Tax Law, or the PITL, and the Corporate Income Tax Law, or CITL. But if you are claiming a refund, Korean authorities might ask for more information, which will fall under both VP and CITLs and just mean at the end of the day, a greater burden of proof falling squarely on your shoulders. And finally, we here at The Fiona Show believe in ending with good news. So we ask that you hang in there because this will not sound like good news at first. The OECD has updated its guidance on country-by-country reporting by the 130-plus countries known as the Inclusive Framework on BEPS. Okay, now stick with us. The big update. Countries no longer have to exchange local reports automatically to meet Action 13 minimum standards. Since those minimum standards have been adopted by all countries in the framework, now you don't have to worry about jurisdictions spreading around your local documentation by default. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. You may remember her from our brilliant September 19th podcast, Transfer Pricing in a Recession. But just in case you can't recall, here's a little help to jumpstart your memory. The two tax issues that I'm really passionate about is, of course, transfer pricing. And then I'm even more passionate about tax aid, where we provide tax, um, tax return preparation and other tax services to low-income taxpayers. So... Um, I have run a clinic uh, that does tax returns in Arlington, Virginia since 93, 92. But because of all the foreign governments that are um, going after big U.S. multinationals where they always think there's bunches of money. Um, So I think that sometimes I've seen um, clients just didn't take it seriously enough and and that can, that can hurt you in the long run. It's interesting to me how often companies spend a lot of time on the numbers, crank the numbers, crank the numbers, but maybe they don't spend as much time figuring out how to explain those, how to put together a uh, complete, consistent narrative and explanation of the situation that would lead a tax authority inexorably to the conclusion, of course you lost money, it's got nothing to do with your transfer price. That authoritative and yet friendly voice you just heard belongs to none other than Barbara Montagani, an attorney at Montagani Tax PLLC in Washington, D.C., and our second roundtable guest this morning to say Barbara is enthusiastic about transfer pricing is like calling a tsunami some ocean wave. A tax attorney, she's built her career climbing the ranks at a few of the big four accounting firms while nobody's perfect, and a global law firm where she advised multinational companies on transfer pricing compliance, strategic planning, cost-sharing arrangements, and basic basically every other kind of complicated transfer pricing transaction you can imagine. Another one of her specialties, transfer pricing dispute resolution, not so coincidentally what we'll be discussing today. As a former U.S. competent authority analyst, she worked for the IRS from 2009 through 2013. Barbara has negotiated double taxation disputes and advanced pricing agreements with competent authority analysts from Japan, India, Denmark, among other companies, and she may just have a few insider tips to share in case anyone in the room has been confronted with the possibility of an adjustment or double taxation lately. We're not here to judge. So if you want to ask, you know, that's okay with us. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks so much for being here. And let's get things started over to you, Mimi. All right. Well, Barbara, we're super excited to have you back again. Thank you for being here. I I think last time when we started off the show, we got to know a little bit about your background um, and how you got into transfer pricing. What we'd like to find out today is about your work as a competent authority analyst. So how did you actually get into becoming a competent authority analyst? Um, Well, that's sort of interesting. I actually, in 93, 94, I actually looked at and and I was working in publishing then tax publishing and I and I looked at and thought oh you know this new this new APA program seems sort of interesting maybe I'll apply for that 
And, and I did, and I, um, and I, and I got an offer, but then I was struggling with the, it was so new, and were they going to continue to do it? And I really needed a job, and I couldn't afford <laughs> to have them say, we've decided not to do it. So I said, I moved on and ended up going to, you know, as noted, the accounting firms and the law firm. And then in 2009, uh, Sean Foley, who had been the director of the APA program, was mm-hmm. I was working with him at, at KPMG, and he said, you know, they're hiring APA, and, you know, because I'd expressed interest. And I was like, eh, okay. So I actually applied the APA program first <coughs> and didn't get hired, which just upset Sean greatly. <laughs> but competent authority was also looking for people. They had a lot of people retire, and they needed people quickly. So I applied there and, and went there, and actually, then about... Two years later, or about a year and a half later, Mike Danilak became competent authority and ended up merging the APA program and competent authority. Oh. So I ended up being an APA team leader anyway. Wow. Total, I know. It's a very <laughs> random set of circumstances. <laughs> well, as I was going to ask, whether or not APA and competent authority were all part of the same umbrella, right? Yeah, oh, okay. they are now. Um, APA was originally part of council. And then when they merged, they brought APA over from council to IRS. Okay. And they're all under this advanced pricing mutual agreement program. So for those unfamiliar with competent authority, can you give a high level overview of what is competent authority? Like what's the difference? Okay. So the difference between competent authority and APA is competent authority is where you go when somebody's already smacked you, be it US, (laughs) India, Canada, whoever. And you go there to try and figure out ask the countries to talk between themselves and figure out how to decide how to not double tax you. APA is when you want to kind of get ahead of it and you want some prospective certainty about how these two um, or more than two, although multilateral APAs are a little bit like a unicorn, um, how these two countries will treat the your cross-border transactions. Um, so it's all, so it made a lot of sense right. for APA and common authority yeah. to be in the same office. Yeah. So one is proactive, one is perhaps reactive, right? Mm. Um, so tell us a little bit, how did your work in competent authority help you, um, or in your transfer pricing work overall? Like, what did it teach you about transfer pricing? Well, that's a very interesting question. What it, what it taught me about transfer pricing, it gave me a window into something that as a transfer pricing specialist working in one of the firms, I didn't fully appreciate, which is the cultural element of transfer pricing. The fact that every country has sort of its own unique views. I mean, and so, so you have to frame arguments in a way that the treaty partner can understand. And I don't mean to say like, oh, treaty partners are stupid, whatever, but you just have to appreciate because <laughs> the same thing is for the U.S. You have to frame things so that you can be, you know, on the same plane talking about whatever the issues are. And countries that have a lot of experience with transfer pricing, tend to look at things maybe a little differently than countries that are new to it or don't have a lot of experience with it. And then the the last thing is when the trade flows are not reciprocal, 
it's a whole different ballgame. So when you're dealing with a country like India, where much more of the trade flow is in, in the sense that, you know, you've got all of the um, the activity going on in, in India being, you know, and the money is going into India and not so much going the other way, it does set up this very interesting mindset with the other country hmm. who to some extent is like, you know, you people are not giving my country enough. Whereas if you're dealing with a country like Japan where there or Canada where there's a lot of where it's more reciprocal, then you get that you get that element uh, that skepticism does isn't quite as prominent as when you've got more one-sided transactions. Interesting. And so transfer pricing has evolved a lot over the past few years, uh, many years. What are the major changes that you've seen in transfer pricing, you know, as in, in this current unsettling world, unsettled world, really? The biggest change is that there are a lot more countries making transfer pricing adjustments now than there used to be. And I, I went and looked at the transfer pricing statistics for now the U.S. reports on the OECD system. But, you know, there are many more, you know, the, the vast majority, like, like almost 200 cases in the last couple of years have been filed with India and, you know, some more with Canada. But there's also other countries and countries with whom the U.S. doesn't have treaties. Mm -hmm that are making transfer pricing adjustments against U.S. multinationals. Okay, so any particular thoughts on why the number of adjustments has increased significantly? Is it a result of the transparency that's being created after the BEPS action plan or, or the increased number of professionals or a better investment on a local country level on education? Of their auditors and I think staff? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that... As technological advances have moved so that, you know, U.S. companies can sell into some jurisdictions that, you know, they would not have made a full investment. The investment to be able to sell when you put the widget on the boat and bring it to wherever and have a warehouse and sell it is is different than I can go on to my computer and order something and it, it gets delivered to me. So I think part of it is... Countries that hadn't been as active thinking, wait a minute, like these big and, you know, it's not entirely U.S., but mostly U.S. companies are like selling a bunch of stuff here and I'm somehow there's there's a value to my me as a market. Mm -hmm. So I think and the U.N. has done uh, the, the group at the U.N. that have developed and revised the U.N. transfer pricing rules have also worked very closely with and educated tax authorities from some of right. these countries. It's a different landscape, that's for sure. So so let's talk about transfer pricing disputes, right? And I think my understanding right now is that if you have a transfer pricing dispute, there are a couple different options. You can go through the administrative appeals process, or you can go straight to tax court, or you could start with the competent authority process, um, I guess, assuming that there's actually a, a tax treaty involved. But... There's, there's also litigation, and I think litigation, if I'm not mistaken, is probably the least desirable option in dispute re resolution. Um, it sort of depends. I will say that there, there can be some issues 
that, yeah, kind of have to go to tax court. Like if, for example, you're challenging the validity of a particular regulation regarding, I don't know, stock options, you can't get any um, definitive answer on that except in the tax court. Um, But those are very limited. I think that 95% of the cases, the administrative process is much more efficient, effective, cheaper than, than, you know, filing in the tax court. Right. And then, and then I think in the process of litigation, you either win or lose. There's no sort of middle ground. Um, I mean, you can, if it looks like the tax court's moving in a direction that one way or the other, I mean, certainly the parties at any time can settle the case. They're not, it's not like you go to tax court and now you have to wait for the tax court judge to say, you know, it's this or it's that. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes that does happen, that you'll, mm-hmm. that the case is filed. And, and a lot of times the tax court judge will say, can you people please go talk over here <laughs> and see if you can come up with a settlement okay. and please don't make me write a big, long opinion. And what about the administrative appeals process? So tell, tell us a little bit more about that process and why it might be more favorable than litigation. The Independent Appeals Office, I, I have the highest respect for the appeals officers. I think they're very, very good at what they do. I think that they that to the extent that you have a rogue, i.e., who's decided that he or she doesn't like you or whatever and has put together a an unprincipled adjustment – that appeals will always, you know, address that. The challenge with appeals is that ultimately you may find yourself with some portion of the adjustment remaining. Appeal says, okay, 60% of this is not good, but 40% of it's left. So if you just go through the domestic appeals process, I mean, if there if there isn't a tax treaty with whatever the other country is, then you just, you take your foreign tax credits and move on. But if there is another country involved, you miss out basically on a chance to throw it all over to the competent authorities and have them, you know, resolve it for you. Right. And and if it doesn't come out with favorable results, you still could be subject to double taxation on a portion of right. that. Yeah, you can't right. get, you can't be guaranteed double tax relief, full double tax relief when you go to appeals. Because in order to get that, appeals would have to conclude that 100% of the adjustment was not justified. And I, I don't know what the numbers are on that, but I, I don't think they're high. And so when there is a treaty country involved, the only way to um, to really be sure that you have a chance, and I did look at the numbers, and, 90, and, and for cases like determined, I don't know, the OECD does kind of weird things with their stats, but <laughs> transfer pricing cases since 2016, 88% got full relief, 7% got unilateral relief, which means that either the the country that imposed it withdrew it or the country that it was uh, imposed against accepted it. And then in 1% of the cases, there was a domestic remedy. So, you know, for almost 100% of the common authority cases handled by U.S. competent authority, taxpayers were able to be completely relieved of double tax, which is much higher than the average across the OECD. So who is the competent authority in the U.S.? (laughs) 
Well, the, the current competent authority in the U.S. is Doug O'Donnell, okay. who is the commissioner of LB&I, Large Business and International, and he manages the, the Advanced Pricing Mutual Agreement program. And the other piece of treaty disputes, which are non-transfer pricing, and that's the tax assistance and interpretation team. And so, you know, sometimes disputes will come up where, you know, an individual is being taxed by a country and it violates the residence rules of the, of the treaty. So you go in and file with them. And then what, what's the ultimate goal of the competent authority? I mean, the ultimate goal of the process is to completely re- relieve double tax, period. So are they are they basically talking to all other competent authority agents in each of the different jurisdictions where they have tax treaties? Well, the taxpayer has to file the case, right? And the, ta- and the case will be, let's say, a transaction between U.S. and India. So the U.S. competent authority... And typically, it's a, an Indian adjustment, not a U.S. About 75% of the U.S. competent authority inventory is foreign-initiated adjustments, which tells you what a good wow. job the U.S. administrative practice does at being able to resolve or mostly re- resolve double tax to the point where the taxpayer doesn't feel the need to file competent authority. So, but the foreign countries, of course, are whacking U.S. companies more <laughs> than they used to. So, when you would file the, you file the claim, you f- you file the, you know, there's a there's a form, of course, and you prepare your competent authority request and you send it in, and then the U.S. then notifies the other country. We have this case. It depends on the country. Sometimes you file simultaneously in the two countries. Sometimes you file in the U.S. and then the U.S. sends it to the other. There's all sorts of ways. But basically, it's triggered by the taxpayer coming in and saying, help me. And 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 that whole process, is that what would be considered the mutual agreement procedure? Yes. that's The, the mutual agreement procedure is to discuss cases where there is taxation not in accordance with the treaty, I think is the specific language in the map. And just cutting in here briefly from our Terrytown offices to ask Fiona a question. Fiona, where does the U.S. have competent authority agreements? The U.S. has competent authority agreements with 44 countries, with more in negotiations. The list includes Argentina, Austria, Belgium, Bermuda, Brazil, Bulgaria, Canada, Cayman Island, Colombia, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, Estonia, France, Greece, Hungary, India, among others. Basically, all of the countries with whom the U.S. exchanges country-by-country reporting data. Thank you very much, Fiona. And just pausing very quickly for our first CPE code word. That word is amicably, as in you always want to resolve transfer pricing disputes amicably. And now back to Barbara and Mimi in Scottsdale. So what what type of restrictions are there in that competent authority process? Some of the treaties do have notice requirements. In other words, you must, like I think in with Canada, it's that you have to file notice. If you don't file your whole competent authority request, you have to file notice of your intent to file it before the last day of the sixth year following the, the 
the tax year at issue. Mexico has this weirder thing where it's four and a half years from the date of the filing or the due date of the tax return, whichever is later. So that that's a head scratcher to me. I can't tell you why it's that. And there are some um, some treaties that don't necessarily have those kinds of requirements. But the first thing you have to do is make sure that you know that you that you can file consistent with the with the filing you know, date deadlines. And what is the simultaneous appeals procedure? What, how does that play a factor? Okay. So simultaneous appeals, it's sort of interesting. Simultaneous appeals has been part of the common authority revenue procedure since forever, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't required. And so what was happening is if there was a U.S. adjustment, a taxpayer would go to appeals, see, can they get, what can I, what can I get out of appeals? And then if they didn't get something that made sense to them, they then file competent authority request. Mm-hmm. And so these cases would be filed years later. And, it, you know, it was, it was felt by the service that it was not the most efficient use of the limited resources of the agency. So now it is required that if you have a U.S. initiated adjustment and you want to go to appeals Mm -hmm. and you are looking forward and realizing it's a treaty country, ultimately I'm going to want to go to competent authority, you file a competent authority request and invoke simultaneous appeals. And, you know, realistically, the appeals officer like comes and sits and listens and because the appeals officer Ultimately, it's the common authority analyst that decides what position would be presented to the treaty partner. Mm-hmm. So, um, but sometimes if you do simultaneous appeals, you can get everybody to agree this isn't a good adjustment and then it goes away. So, I mean, because the competent authority process, in my mind, has always been a really positive group, right? The idea is here to avoid double taxation issues, to help multinational taxpayers, lots of different benefits. What other, I mean, what are the other benefits of using competent authority? And going through that process for a multinational? Um, I think uh, the biggest one is, of course, that you can be pretty well assured that you're going to be able to have your double taxation relieved. It also, it, it gives you an advocate or an ally or whatever with regard to the other country, which can be really helpful going forward because some countries, like Germany has a formal process where if they make an adjustment and you agree that you will not exercise your right to go to common authority, they'll knock the adjustment down, hmm. which is, shall we say, unprincipled. Oh, Mike Danilak went nuts over, <laughs> you know, he didn't want any USIEs to be doing that. So to some extent, there's an ability for for the, the U.S.-based taxpayers to actually have sort of an ally when they are trying to deal with the foreign country tax authority. And one more time, giving a quick interruption to ask Fiona. Fiona, what do you think are the biggest benefits of the competent authority process? There are many. To start, Barbara is right. It is great to have an ally in transfer pricing disputes. Generally, in transfer pricing cases the burden of proof falls on the taxpayer, however in the competent authority process, the burden of proof falls upon the jurisdiction proposing the transfer pricing adjustment. 
That is a big advantage. Thank you, Fiona. And just one more quick pause with our second CPE code word, and that word is CASE, as in making a solid transfer pricing case starts with strategic business decisions and excellent documentation. And back to Barbara and Mimi in Scottsdale. I mean, the reality is if you have the same types of transactions year after year after year and you go through the common and authority process and they do reach some sort of agreement, Sometimes, even though the agreement is just for those years mm-hmm. and it's not precedent, na 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 na. Nevertheless, if you continue to exercise, you know, run the business the same way and charge the same things, after having gone through a common authority process, sometimes you will find that both countries go okay. We'll, as long as you keep doing it the way everybody agreed. We won't, you know, there's no guarantee of that, Mm -hmm. which is why, you know, sometimes people will leverage competent authority agreements into an APA so they can get certainty going forward. But that's just, uh, uh, you know, you have an ally as a taxpayer. Right, right. And and earlier when we were talking about how you got into competent authority and the differences, you were saying, you know, it was what you learned. Part of it was the cultural aspect of dealing with all these different governments, and 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 so I feel like competent authority, in a lot of ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, you got to learn how to navigate the political environment, not just the economic environment of what is the what is an appropriate answer for transfer pricing purposes, but what is acceptable from both a cultural perspective. I don't like the word political, okay, because. It's not, it's not a question of like the political, uh, the tax authorities in each country like comply with their own tax laws. So I guess if the tax laws were changing, then they would. But I think that it, it is really a question of, you know, being able to understand sort of how the, uh, the treaty partner would look at it. And be able to sort of meet them where they are. I worked a lot on Japan cases. And I loved working with the Japanese tax authority because, for one thing, you needed to know every single fact because they knew every single fact. And so there was no slouching on those cases. And they also, and because of that, they were very, um, they were very willing and wanted to analyze and get to an answer that was principled. And, you know, they wouldn't, there were other countries where sometimes they'd get a little more emotional about it. And then you'd have to try and figure out how to get at them. But with, you know, but you did have to learn how to address it and how to, you know, go through the steps because there's no rushing it. You have to take Mm -hmm. all the steps. It's a very formal, it's a much more formalistic approach than with some other, with like the Canadians, for example. So you really had to learn, you know, I learned a whole lot when I got there watching other people negotiate their cases and learning how to do it. Did you feel like being part of competent authority and speaking to those other competent authority agents in in those countries, there was already sort of this mutual level of trust and understanding that you should try to come to a reasonable conclusion? Otherwise, most agents are taking a very unilateral perspective, right? Right. Well, it's not the agents that are there. I mean, the competent authority offices Mm -hmm. are not the agents. The agents are over here. The competent authority people are over here. And so ultimately, IEs and the functional equivalent in the other country 
don't sit at the table. Okay. They they weigh in. They can tell you that they think this or that should happen, but it is it is a completely separate part of the tax authorities, and so there is you know not a lot of you, you certainly can have countries where they'll pound the table and they'll want something that you really feel is not you know not principled at all. But you can usually work through those things. But I mean, that's the the biggest benefit of it is that it is completely separate from the audit process. Right. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and you know you work with japan a lot and so i and this is how i knew you this is when i was at uh, mufg union bank and we were actually going through um a bilateral apa process so i've never been in the competent authority process but i have been in the apa process and to your point about the japanese tax authorities they're so detail oriented and you, you, you have to share the same level of information on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. At least in the APA process, you, you oh, have yeah. to make sure that your answers, you, you answer them specifically, but you have to give that same level of detail to both sides mm -hmm. so and that everyone has a, starts on the same level case. playing field. Yep. Oh, and if you don't, it damages your, how both countries view you. So, because the APA process, and to some degree also common authority, I know transparency is sort of a hackneyed term at this point, but you really do have to be transparent, and you really do have to share everything. There's no hiding the ball. And to your point about the Japanese knowing the details, I mean, I felt like, Doing Japan cases as a competent authority analyst, that was my highest level of like there, you had to be on your game every minute because there was no detail that was too small. The NTA yeah. didn't know. Right. And if you didn't also know those details, you know, it, it, it would never, it wouldn't work out well, but it was incredible because if numbers evolve, right, as you because this process is very long. Mm -hmm. And, and so if you produce numbers on, let's say, January 1st, the numbers that you produced on that day could change when you reproduce them, and you're asked for some similar level data on June 1st, right. 
And and you are constantly asked for this data over and over again. And I, is that the same in the competent authority process too? Well, because the competent authority process is dealing with years that are finished, mm-hmm. you don't have changing data. You, you're dealing with, you know, here's the adjustment from 2008 to 2011, and the numbers are what the numbers are. Okay. And so you don't have to, you know, you don't have to try to explain anything to, you know, the tax authorities that this is why, you know, when we restated this or we, you know, added this in or whatever. So for common authority process, because you're always looking backwards, okay. it's not an issue. But would you look at multiple years or would you consider multiple years under the competent authority process? You have yeah. to resolve year by year. Okay. The audit is year by year. You don't say we're going to the total amount of the adjustment is a million dollars and we'll agree that it will be half a million done. I mean, you calculate the actual result year by year. So you might decide that if the total of all the years is a million and they agree that they should withdraw 60% of it, then you do 40% for each year, but you calculate when you exchange your papers mm-hmm. with the other country, there's specific amounts for specific years. And then the interesting thing is always, do the taxpayers go back to those years and file amended returns or can you roll them all into and take them into account in the current year? And the U.S., in the U.S., we would typically allow them to put them all in the current year and not require them to do because it's then not only a, f- a, f- a federal amended return, but then it flows down to how many states do I have to amend and then it becomes a real like issue. But Japan, however, I believe always made them go back and file amended returns for all the years. But you and you didn't have to do the same. So Japan could say we're going to make you amend all your years mm-hmm. and the U.S. can say we're going to roll it up into the current year and uh, because once the countries agree, the countries right. just agree on what they're going to do. And then the U.S. then sends their letter to the U.S. taxpayer saying this is the thing. And usually you've told the taxpayer and sometimes in the letter itself you'll say, and we've agreed that you're going to take this into account in the current year or, you know, whatever. So during the proceedings, if if a taxpayer goes to competent authority and let's say competent authority in the U.S. meets with Japan, does the taxpayer actually get to sit at the table while you guys talk? Absolutely not. (laughs) And as a matter of fact, when taxpayers try Uh to, it's a very interesting thing because it's a fine line, right? You want the taxpayers to be active and you want them to be, um, to work with you and there have been cases, and there were certainly cases when I was there, where the competent authorities would invite the taxpayer, the taxpayer would ask if they could do a presentation to the competent authorities while they were meeting. Mm-hmm. And that happened occasionally when I was there. And they would come and the taxpayer comes in and sort of presents information. Each tax authority can ask them questions and then you bow and they leave and then you sort of discuss it amongst yourselves. But and and honestly, the taxpayers can also provide this, um, you know, in the dispute resolution world, you talk about these various like channels of communication and taxpayers can sometimes be helpful in 
providing information to the, like, oh, we've talked to NTA and they've said X or, you know, NTA, we've talked to IRS. They've said. So sometimes you can sort of get to feel out how the other country might feel about a particular resolution, having the taxpayer, but there's not so much of that, but certainly if the taxpayer wants to present, they have to present to both countries simultaneously. Right. Mm. Have you ever seen a situation where you're like, I wish you hadn't said that? <laughs> oh, to the ta- well, Yeah. <laughs> usually when they present, they you kind of know what they're going to say. Okay. Okay. And honestly, it's really a question of the countries get to decide, period. And so they can say whatever, you know, they want to say. Mm-hmm. Twice I had that happen. And it was a Japanese-based company. Mm-hmm. And nothing that they said was new or different, but they were kind of feeling, I think, kind of feeling out the countries for, you know, kind of letting the countries know right. that this might be a possible way to resolve the case that the taxpayer would accept. Because the taxpayer can, you can reach an agreement, the taxpayer can say, yeah, no, I don't like that. Oh. Um, now, if that happens in your case you probably haven't done a very good job as a competent authority analyst mm-hmm. because taxpayers should not be surprised right. by what you come up with as a settlement. Right. Um, you've got to keep them in the loop. Right. So does this whole process help with tax certainty in your mind? I think it does. Well, I think that in terms of and this is like a dirty little secret or whatever, in terms of if you have a particular flow of transactions that you have every single year and you do the same thing and it's between these two countries and one country audits you and common authority resolves it in a particular way, although that doesn't entitle you to continue to go forward doing that, mm-hmm. if you do, if you if you do not vary from that methodology or whatever, the auditors, then there's a sort of a disincentive, like, well, we had this competent authority agreement and they agreed on this, then it's the auditors going, yeah, okay, I'll find somebody else. It's like the whole, you know, it's the hunters and they hear the bear and one of them like ties his shoes to start running. And the guy says, what are you crazy? You can't outrun the bear. And he says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. (laughs) And so that's sort of, I mean, seriously, that's what the, all the multinationals are doing is, you know, you'd like to not get their attention. So is it absolute certainty? No. If you want certainty, you got to go get an APA Mm -hmm. period. But is there, you know, have you reduced the chances and the likelihood of suffering yet another audit adjustment on that same flow? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, there's so many positives and benefits to the competency proceedings procedures. What is the downside? Uh, for one thing, you have to be completely transparent with the tax authorities. And for some companies, that's really hard. And they are reluctant to be as transparent with you as they sort of need to be to get it done. So some of it depends on, you know, the company itself and whether they're kind of willing to, because it, it is a downside and you are, you do have to be transparent and, there is a certain reluctance about that. 
The other thing is there's no guarantee um, that you're going to get full relief from double tax. Mm -hmm. Under the U.S. rules, though, if you, you know, if you go and go through the common authority process, then, you know, you've met all the requirements under the foreign tax credit rules, so you'll get your credit. Um, for a number of the taxpayers I worked with, they were in an excess credit position, so the tax credits weren't going to do them any good, so they really needed us to sell the case 100%. And then depending on the country involved, it can take a while. So from a financial perspective, mm -hmm. those years aren't, aren't really closed until you get the resolution. So... Um, What's the average amount of time you think? Anyway. Um, the average. It's interesting. I looked at the. I looked at the most recent ones, and it says the average time for a transfer price in competent authority is about thirty three months, which is wow. the average. So obviously, some are some longer, are, some, some, are longer, shorter, some yeah. are shorter. Yeah. Um, if it's not, if it's a non transfer pricing issue, the average time is like fourteen months. Hmm. Uh, well, those are much more, you know, do you or are you or are you not a resident? You know, do you get the benefit of the treaty or not? They're, okay. they're fairly clear cut questions as opposed to the, you know, the more complex the more, the company more, relationships, right? Right. Yeah. Factual issues. Who's holding intangibles. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, you know, personally, I'm very bullish on competent authority because I think that if you can... You know, if you're willing to be transparent and you know that this other country, like, you know, India is going to whack you. <laughs> and the only way to even actually avoid paying the tax, because if you file for competent authority, then you can suspend, they suspend collection of the tax adjustment. So there's, there's a certain incentive on the part of whoever made the adjustment to try and get it done because otherwise they don't get their money. So let's talk about your own experience. What Have you worked with countries that were new to transfer pricing? I mean, that's got to be a challenge in and of itself because if they don't really know much about transfer pricing and you're trying to negotiate a transfer pricing related case, what was that process like? It's very interesting. I think there's a certain amount of education that goes along with it. And this is where... Honestly, taxpayers can be of enormous help in the sense that the, the taxpayer, because the U.S. side of the taxpayers would come in and sit and talk to me, and you could go in in the other country and sit down and talk to the tax authorities there. And so, you know, although the taxpayers are not at the table, they can, and the really, like, well-advised taxpayers are active participants in the process. And so when I would be dealing with a country that either didn't have a lot of experience or maybe the flows were all one way or the other, so they had sort of that skeptical attitude, mm -hmm. you had to do some degree of education. But we found that taxpayers were also a very valuable ally in being able to kind of, you know, help the the other country, you know, understands sort of the nuances better. Right, right. It, you know, the last time we talked to you made a comment. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it just a little bit, but you said something along the lines of dispute resolution has to start way at the beginning, even before documentation. And then you went on to say people always talk about documentation like it's the beginning, 
but it's really the middle. So can you explain what you meant by that? Why is documentation in the middle? How does that sort of fit within the whole dispute resolution process? Okay. And this is something that, you know, as a transferprising person, I, you know, become more and more convinced of this the longer I go. Companies can get into trouble when they let the transfer pricing tail wag the business dog. Mm -hmm. It has to start with the business. It has to start with the business model. And there has to be a consistent story. Transfer pricing is really storytelling. And you have to have a consistent story so that when you do your documentation, you are documenting something that you've already figured out and thought about. So, oh, maybe we'll put, we think we want to put an affiliate here or there. Or, well, let's think about what are our business reasons. And we, it's not that like their tax rate's 5% because that, you know becomes a little That's bit a bad suspect. That's a not a there, right? good business. <laughs> it's not a good business reason. And so it really has to all come from the business model, which means that before you even start putting together the 10 principal documents or the ma- I mean, the master file gives you an opportunity to tell that story, right? Mm-hmm. In, in a more robust way than the 10 principal documents do. Although they certainly can give you an opportunity to do that. But you have to be able to sort of make your transfer pricing policies flow from how you do your business. And if you vary from that too much, then that's when some tax authority or other is going to say, but wait, you said this, but you've got this company here and they're making a, you know, a bunch of money. And I think mm-hmm. that people are really, really concerned about, oh, with country by country reporting, they're just going to take the numbers and they're going to start cranking out. Adjustments, Statistics and, yeah. which I really think is not, well, first of all, every country that the U.S. signs an agreement with, they specifically agree not to do that. Now, of course, they could, but it's pretty easy to realize when they do that and call them out on it. But anyway, I, I just think that... Or they could do it back in the envelope calculation and then look for their action, like a real reason to sort of latch the, on to, right? Right. <laughs> right. But by then... E- you know, good luck trying to find the reason right. if in, and, but then you're doing an audit, right? Yeah, then it's yeah. just a regular audit. Like mm-hmm. maybe you go, Oh, that I think I'll look at this country because of the information that I see in the country by country report, yeah. which is kind of what the idea of the country by country report is. Right. But then you still have to go through the process of auditing the comp, the company and the transactions and so forth. So, so, you know, being, you know, having that perspective, right? So what are multinationals doing right versus what are they doing wrong? It's clearly they need to make sure that they have the business case mm-hmm. first and foremost. They do. And I think that, again, I think that you, that some, some companies can get, caught up in the numbers and and there and sometimes I'll be honest with you there can be a disconnect between operations and finance or tax and bad stuff happens I had a client about 2 years after Germany passed their exit tax who the business people in Europe decided this German plant isn't really working out well for us. We're going to just close it and move to France. Well, <laughs> you know, so HQ finds out about it after the German plant has closed. And we're like, hmm, that maybe isn't good. 
And But then when we looked at it more, we realized that the reason they closed the German plant was because it was losing money. So we were able to kind of basically say to Germany, seriously, like, we're not paying any taxes. Be- like, if anything, we're losing money. You need to be giving us some money back. <laughs> so we were able to work on it, but it was just happened. It was honestly, it was, I'm not going to say totally happenstance, but I'm not sure how we found out about it, but... You know, we all started like jumping up and down and going, ooh, this is kind of bad. And because the operations people just didn't keep us, didn't the keep loop. them in the loop. Yeah. So, so the, the, the companies who are too siloed and who don't have that person in operations in India or in Canada or wherever that you can, get to and say, can you tell me what this is and why this happened? Those are bad stuff can happen if you're too siloed as an organization. Right. I mean, but that is a situation where the business made a business decision and then didn't didn't tell anybody, anybody, which is also bad. It's (laughs) right. And and so, and again, the lines of communication and they also have to understand that there's an expectation that they let finance or tax or whoever manages transfer pricing. No, because that was the other thing. Mm-hmm. They were like, uh, like it never occurred to us to tell you about this because this is all in Europe. And the fact is headquarters is in the U S and we're just like, eh, you know, 400 miles and we're going over here. And so it never occurred to them huh. in the operation side, which isn't that surprising. I mean, and right. this was a long, this was a while ago. But I don't know that it's that surprising that the operations people don't know that they should probably let tax or finance know when they're doing this because to them it was just we made the decision, we did it, done. Right, right. And you also had mentioned before that there was a a case, a, a rare case, where you didn't believe that the transfer pricing adjustment was based on a principled approach and you closed the case. So are there situations where competent authority professionals don't, Agree? Like, does that happen a lot? It's very, very, very rare. And this was a case where it was that I saw literally it was a joint venture and neither joint venture partner controlled the joint. It was, it was unheard of. And like, I kept going over everything. I spent months reviewing everything and reading every bylaw and reading minutes of you know, and it was sort of the, yes, you did have an equal number of people from each joint venture partner that were on the board of the entity that had been adjusted. And, you know, it was a majority vote, but you had to have at least one person from the other entity voting in favor of whatever it was. So you couldn't just say, oh, you know, we've got all these people. It was the most down the middle 50-50 thing I had ever seen. So Mm -hmm. I couldn't find operational control. There certainly wasn't, you know, equity control. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, very hard case. And um, I have to say, again, Mike Danilak, may he rest in peace. It's so sad to me that he's gone. He said to me, Barb, like, is this really a thing? And I said, Mike, if you tell me to give him a little bit, I can do it. But And he said, but is it the right answer? I said, no. So we hmm. agreed to disagree. And, um, and it was interesting because the other country we didn't have an arbitration provision with. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, hey, what if we go to arbitration? We're like, uh, look at the treaty. I don't see anything. 
So, um, and ultimately it was interesting in that case, the taxpayer then litigated in the other country and got 100% relief oh, wow. from the adjustment. I know. Oh, oh wow. We kept telling them, go litigate it. And they were like, please, we want you to. Yeah. Oh. So that okay. was a, so that it ended was up with a happy ending after all that. The right? taxpayer got a happy ending <laughs> and it was, it was the most fascinating, interesting case I worked on in four years. And it was a, it was a sign to me that people who are kind of skeptical of the process, like, oh, you people just split the difference for understand that we don't. Right. And that there are situations where you just, you draw the line and you said, you guys are, you're wrong. Right. You're, <laughs> you're wrong. wrong. And, and it's not <laughs> often. I mean, it did. It was a very big number. So it kind of killed the map statistics for a couple of years in terms of percentage, no relief. But they actually put a footnote huh. in the statistics that said like 87% of this is attributable to one case. Wow. So because they didn't want people yep. to look at it and go... This oh. is not a successful... Yeah, yeah, no relief. Right, no relief. Oh, my no. gosh, you guys are terrible. But really, in fact, it was because you, this case, you were like, well, you, the, other, the other side is wrong. Yeah. So. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. All right. Well, that's great. Barbara, as always, we love having you. We do. And your, your perspective is, your, your real perspective is so refreshing. Thank you so much, Barbara and Mimi, for that excellent discussion. Uh, don't put on your sunscreen just yet, folks. Uh, it's time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know. Here's how it works. We put a transfer pricing rock star, that's you, Barbara, uh, in the hot seat for a rapid fire round of questions. Are you ready? Yes. Question one complete. How do you handle, uh, we bleep this out, but I'll say it here. How do you handle your shit hits the fans moments? Okay. Um, I do find that a glass of wine can make pretty much anything bearable. <laughs> one glass of wine. Uh, preferably a medium bodied red or a New Zealand white. We traveled to New Zealand yeah. and I really like that. <laughs> what are your strengths and weaknesses? Um, I'd say one of my biggest strengths is the fact that I'm a good writer, and I'm not embarrassed to say that. Perhaps 12 years of Catholic school grammar. And I did, I was an English major for all of the talk now about only STEM majors are good. Um, and so it has always been a, an ability in my career to be able to e explain cogently and an, an argument to sort of lead the the reader to to the conclusion that I would like the reader to get to. So I would say my writing has been something that has allowed me to kind of set myself apart. 
and uh, common transfer pricing advice that you disagree with. Why don't you go set up a routine distributor in X country? It, it, <laughs> it just, it makes me insane. And this is why, because when I was at IRS, it was, you know, there were a whole lot of the global crash years when every company was losing money freaking everywhere. And there was no such thing as routine anything. And and countries, and that's why when we talk about sort of pillar one and pillar two and how do we divide profits, nobody ever does, nobody ever thinks about the L word, which is losses. And countries are quite happy to share profits. But when it comes to the losses, they say, well, you're just a routine low risk. And so I get to have positive profit and tax it, even though, you know, there was a hurricane that destroyed your plant or there was a tsunami and it wiped out your R&D center. Or, you know, there were actual honest to God reasons why you didn't make any money. And if you lock yourself into that routine, then many countries treat it as a floor below which you cannot go despite whatever's happening. Indeed. And if you haven't checked out uh, that episode, we had uh, Barbara on before. That's from September 19th, Transfer Pricing and Recession. She touched on a couple of the themes uh, just now that she really explores in detail there. And we could probably have a whole another podcast on Pillar 1, Pillar 2, um, and, and the shenanigans there. And we will. And we will. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, but Barbara, thank you so much. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. I've got one more question. This is a very important question. What are you most looking forward to doing here in Scottsdale? Well, it is my understanding that there is a spa treatment in my future. <laughs> um, and so I am very much enjoying that. And also seeing that strange, like big orange thing in the sky that we haven't seen in the D.C. area for months. And I think it's called the sun. And so um, I'm looking forward to being able to just be actually in the sun. And that concludes our episode. We want to thank Barbara and Mimi for a wonderful conversation. Also, friendly reminder to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify, and we'll give you the deep dive transfer pricing fix you need every week. Plus, don't forget our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, where you'll learn about transfer pricing in the news, learn about it there, and listen as we dissect it here. This podcast was engineered, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello, who also wrote our fabulous news section. Special thanks to Mr. Andrew O'Donnell, who provided us with equipment services in Scottsdale and conducted principal editing of our interview segment this week. Our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, writes our scripts. We'll catch you next week, everyone. Everyone.